Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Anne Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, we're back with host emeritus Louis Goldberg speaking with special guest Adam Stettner, founder and CEO of Fund Canna, a leading provider of reliable banking and financing solutions to the cannabis industry. Fund Canna provides flexible, highly customizable short-term funding solutions to all levels of the cannabis industry and supply chain, including cultivators, manufacturers, vendors, and suppliers. In this episode, Lewis connects with Adam to understand what makes Fund Canna unique among cannabis lenders and to talk about some of the biggest banking and financing challenges facing operators in the space, as well as the status of current cannabis reform bills like the Safe Banking Act. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Adam Stettner of Fund Canna. Hey, everybody. It's Lewis. I haven't done the podcast in a while, but uh, when this guest was scheduled, um, I kind of elbowed Ann and Nick aside to say, I not only want to do this, I have to do this Um, because today I'm speaking with literally my oldest friend in the world, Adam Stetner, uh, the founder and CEO of Funcana. Um, Who is Adam? (laughs) Other than that, he's a, a fundamentally decent kind human being after spending 14 years creating, running, and growing Reliant Funding into one of the largest small business funding companies in America, Adam, saw an opportunity to create another product under another underserved segment, the cannabis industry. And in September of 2021, he founded FundCanna, a financial services company focused on meeting the financial needs of the cannabis sector. Cannabis, as everybody who has ever listened to this podcast knows, is one of the fastest growing industries in the United States. And all industries need access to capital. And cannabis, as we all know, in particular, is is just it's really hard for smaller cannabis companies to get funding. And Fund Canna makes it easy for all segments of the cannabis industry to access flexible capital solutions. And Adam's team has provided businesses nationwide with access to funding for nearly 20 years. Um, together, they have provided more than $6 billion to over 200,000 unique businesses nationwide and have looked at nearly a million small business loans and their financials and figured out who is worthy of capital and sadly who isn't. But further, Adam and his team has funded an additional $14 billion to individual borrowers in the form of education loans. Fund Canna exists solely to empower cannabis businesses and their related partners, giving them more control over their cash flow, by providing them access to simple and flexible financing solutions. And Adam has done this for a long time. He is a really admired CEO and was a finalist uh, for the San Diego Business Journal's uh, most admired CEO for five years running, has won the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year in San Diego and was a finalist for that for three times. And as I mentioned, I've literally known Adam his entire life. His father, Bill Stetner, and my father, Sidney Goldberg, were best friends for over 35 years. And it's actually kind of amazing because his dad and my dad used to smoke together from the 1960s, probably through the early 2000s. And they were literally old heads together. Um, you know, Adam is somebody I've, I've known a long time. I mean, we, we rode tricycles together around um, in Manhattan and then in New Jersey, you know. They lived in Alpine. We lived in Tenafly, and and um, you know our lives paralleled and then split. And about five years or so ago, we got back together. Um, I was representing companies in the small business lending space, and saw that Adam was at Reliant, and we actually met at a, an MJ BizCon. Um, where Adam was kind of just sniffing around the industry. And I remember sitting and having a drink with him um, and, and talking about what was going on in the space. And there was this kind of glint in his eye, like there's something there, there, there's something there. And now 
through Fund Canada, there really is something there. So Adam, thanks for thanks for taking the time not only to be on the podcast, but to give us the opportunity to work together because it's 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 a it's truly a joy. Well, I really appreciate first I appreciate the intro. Um and second, it's uh it's 50 years in the making, right? So uh I'm yeah. thrilled. I'm thrilled that we're doing this. One of the the coolest things about Adam's family is that they are a family of artists. Adam's dad was one of the the most famous commercial photographers, you know, ever. Um, you know, having shot the Marlboro Man, having created some amazing images with Dr. Pepper, and my favorite image is the one that your dad did of the American flag made out of matches with one match burning. And I, I have always found that to be a truly iconic image for who the United States is. And your brother Luke is a, a noted artist in his own right. Uh, both a photographer and multimedia artist. I mean, he had an installation at Storm King. And when I found out about that, I was like, shit, I got to go back up there and see if it's still there because I love Storm King. You took a different path, though. You know, art has not been your your direction. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, the the tension between, or what, not tension, but like what role does art play in your life or, or how you think? So uh, again, thank you for all of that. I... I would tell you that that uh, I think it's just ingrained in all of us, the whole family, to be creative uh, and have an eye for at least what we find appealing visually. Uh, what's interesting from a young age, and and my my dad, uh, although very creative, he was a, a very curious and cerebral guy. Um, and he noted in me that I was drawn more to numbers. Uh, as he used to tell me all the time, you're more left brain than right brain, but you still have the creativity. Don't, don't ignore it, right? Make sure you use it. So, so for me, the, the creating has always been interesting. I mean, whether I was a little kid and, and drawing uh, pictures of architecture, I was more interested in the angles and, and, and the numbers, uh, but still liked creating. And as I got older, it was fun to spot patterns. Um, you know, a, a little scary because there was, you know, some, there's some OCD to my obsession with, with the patterns and the numbers and how things fit together. Um, but, it, but I've never stopped ha this desire to be creative. I just took the path of creating with numbers where my brother, my father, even my mom, um, they all created with that right side of the brain, the more emotional kinesthetic, the feel of things. And mm -hmm. I lean more, much more toward, uh, like the just black and white hard logic of numbers. Well, and it's funny, I didn't mention your mom and your mom also was, uh, she kind of seemed to blend both, right? As, as working with creative people in the advertising space as their business manager, I mean, she, she was able to enable that creativity from a much more business perspective. And I apologize, Carol. Um, I, I did not mean to not include you in this conversation. That's not cool. And I, and I definitely apologize. Um, I'll just add, Lewis, you know, it, you're you're spot on that that she bridged the gap for both. But I think she she leaned very much to that right brain as well in that um, her ability to be creative and her stylistic um, her innate stylistic view on things shaped a lot of the productions that she was involved with music videos, TV commercials, et cetera. And she got a, she got along very well with the creative types because she got it. Um, she was one of them too. Uh, but you're right. She, she had that business side too. She played with numbers and, um, and having both, you know, very intellectual and curious parents that were very creative. I always felt like a black sheep to begin with. Um, in, in that I was just an oddball all around. Um, but I, I always leaned to the, to this number, this numerical, even the way I see things there, it's in colors and numbers, patterns to everything. And, uh, the rest of my family is, is much more free form. Everything is regimented for me, routine. And for them, they're all, you know, I won't say free spirits because they're very structured and organized and achieving. It's just really creative. Well, I, I would argue that you have been really creative as well, you know, um, in Reliant, 
you know, that is a, and talk, I mean, when we talk about Reliant, it was, it, it was, and I don't know if Reliant is still in existence as itself, but, um, you know, you lent to small businesses and there is definitely a creativity in one seeing the opportunity, right? I mean, I think any entrepreneur has to be creative in, in that drive to create a new business and seeing an opportunity and two, you know, there is a, a, an understanding of risk, right? Entrepreneurship is, is all about risk. How do you think about risk? Like, how did you think about Reliant? How did you think about the, the, the creation of your student loan lending business? And then eventually how, we'll get into Fun Canada, but like talk about risk and where that fits into your life. So uh, I, look, I, I, um, first I'll say, yeah, there are different types of risk. And, and so even in my personal life, I, I, I would say it's calculated risk. I, I love taking risks, but I want them to be calculated risks. In other words, I never want to be, I don't want to feel reckless in anything I do. Um, so calculated risk. But I don't, I also never want to feel that sense of, I'll say safety, but but I want to make sure that I clarify um I want a little bit of an edge. I, I want to push boundaries. I want to, and I do that in my personal life with some of my hobbies. Uh, you know, I like to go fast and race cars and, and do things that um, from the outside might seem a bit reckless, but, but from the inside, uh, when you approach things, same thing, even like the turn uh, at a track, there's an approach angle, there are breaking points, there are turn-ins, there's apex. All of these things are like mental calculations that you're doing as you go around. They take your focus, um, but they force you to be creative. The next time around, you try a different approach, right? Where you turn in, the speed, the breaking points, et cetera. The, those kinds of things lead to, and then you build your speed up, again, calculated risk. So in, in approaching risk at work, it, it, first, it's finding opportunity. And and by opportunity, um, I think there, there are always areas where business in particular, business struggle. Um, those areas of struggle are opportunities to be creative, to try to to try to either lessen or reduce the struggle, or in some cases to make it less painful. Um, but ultimately, it, it it I looked at student lending as um, people want to go to school. The price of education was very high, and I knew from my own experience, um, not necessarily affordable. And um, and so the idea that that people would graduate from school with a lot of debt that was all due, my focus there was on a consolidation and extension of terms. So I could lock in a low rate for them, extend their terms and reduce their cash outlay while they were graduating. They could focus on you know two sides of a balance sheet. They could focus on their revenue, which in this case is earnings as a graduate. And I could help them reduce the outflow by extending their terms without increasing their rate. So really just lowering their payment. Um, we ended up just by focusing on consolidation lending, um, we ended up, as you said earlier, doing roughly 14 billion um, for students. And, um, and, and it worked out very well. Um, you know, our programs were, were not onerous for the students. They were quite beneficial with all kinds of incentives uh, for great performance. But that led me Ironically, it led me to small business lending because in the crisis, and this goes to risk, in, in the crisis of 08, financial crisis of 08, uh -huh. um, we, even though we had done all this volume, uh, banks were making millions in fees, in, in some cases more than we were making. Um, and they still, during that crisis, they stopped returning my phone call. They stopped replying to my emails and ultimately pulled my credit facility. So I'd slowly grown this facility to be a billion dollar facility. And we were revolving that line um, and had flawless performance, zero default, zero delinquency. And my feeling was if they stopped calling us back and stopped returning our emails and pulled our facility, small business was going to have a need leaving that familiar area of student lending was a risk. Um, finding ways to try to fund small business as a recession, a very big recession, um, 
was coming was also a risk. But but again, the thinking was if you looked at this holistically and you thought about inflow and outflow of capital and making sure that you didn't overextend those businesses, in theory, uh, you could mitigate the majority of that risk while helping an underserved population. I mean, cabbage, I mean, you, when you were doing this, there was that boom of small business lenders, right? Um, we worked with one BizFi and there was cabbage and on deck and all of them. And the, the, the challenge was the hyper competitive nature of this business was you wanted to deploy capital. And what happened often was what was called stacking, you know, on deck would lend to uh, a dry cleaner in long Island. And then BizFi would lend to the same, dry cleaner in Long Island, and then cabbage would lend to the steam and they're stacking these loans on top of each other. And it was a form of musical chairs, which in essence screwed you guys all. It wasn't even the borrower that got screwed the worst. It was the sources of capital. How did that experience shape shape you as you started to build Funcana? So, well, uh, first, what I'll say is what I watched, um, I, I think in part, I, I, I referenced kind of uh, risk taking. I think part of being comfortable observant um, and it's not to say that I see everything I miss, uh, you know, probably more than I see and I make mistakes all the time. Except in hiring PR firms, you haven't made a mistake yet in hiring a PR firm. <laughs> That is true. Uh, that is true. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, you know. So, so, uh, but, but you you look at this, and um, and so one of the things that I observed was what you mentioned stacking. But what I also observed was a lot of our competitors, and and not necessarily the names that you, that you uh, listed, but some of the competitors would be nasty. When if a client had more need than what you extended to them and they took money from somewhere else, that funding company would would in a uh, I think anyway, uh, an aggressive way, go after the borrower, threaten them. And then they'd also go after the other lenders and claim torturous interference and all these other. And and instead, I step back. How does it feel for the borrower? What are they going through right now? Why did they take the additional money? How do we disincentivize them? Because I do think it's not only was it- Wait, How do we disincentivize them from what? From stacking, from, from over, really what I'm getting at is from overextending themselves. Um, in, in other, and I'm not, I don't believe in protecting people from themselves, but at the same time, I, people don't know always, myself included, we, you need to be educated and informed so that you can make your own decisions effectively. And so risk, I believe, is the, just to tie it together, risk is the same in that regard. If you take the time up front to inform your clients why you're offering what you're offering and how it will work and why you feel that someone wants just arbitrarily, someone wants you to provide them with $500,000 but you underwrite the file and you're comfortable at 350,000. Just as an example, I think what, what often happens is um, it's very uh, cut and dry. It, it's, this is our offer, take it or leave it. And I think that's a mistake. I think if upfront you go through the effort to explain, and I, and I don't mean educate in a condescending way, but mm -hmm. explain why you're doing what you're doing. I, I love the WH questions, but I want to be proactive in trying to answer them before they have to be asked. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's how it will work. Um, and, and if you do that, I think people have a better understanding and likely they can then make their own decisions, but their behavior is not altered because you threaten them. Uh, or because you demand it of them, behavior often, not always, is altered because they're better informed. And I think uh, knowledge is power for sure. And so part of, in my opinion, serving an underserved group, and, and in this case, um, you know, now we're talking about cannabis entrepreneurs before we were talking about traditional business entrepreneurs. Um, when I say they're underserved, they're underserved by traditional banking, by traditional means of lending, both categories, cannabis and traditional 
business, small business. And I think it's it's great for cannabis operators to hear that small businesses, dry cleaners, restaurants, construction, specialty trade, um, they only get approved by traditional banks at a rate of 20 to 25 percent. So the inverse of that, 75 to 80 percent of the time, they're being declined. And so for uh, I think from the outside looking in, people think it, everybody else has it easier. And the reality is 80% of the time, they can't get money either, traditional small business. In looking at um, the stacking example you gave, what we would try to do is let them know the reason we're giving you maybe less than you originally wanted is because we don't want you to be overburdened with payment. We know you can handle this payment comfortably, and we're in it for the relationship in the long haul because if it if it doesn't work well for you, if it burdens you, ultimately it's not going to work well for us either, or you'll have an unfavorable view of us and how we run our business. And that's not what I wanted. It's not what I want with Fund Canada either. Talk about relationships for a minute because, you know, you are, uh, while creative thinker, a linear thinker, right? Um, and when it comes to lending, it often comes down to how do I make these numbers work? But small businesses often are based on people, right? There is a founder, you know, and she may have started uh, an edibles company and or he may have an extraction company or a small grow. And where does the role of relationship play in how you work with these companies? So, so first I'll go with how I educated myself on cannabis because I'm only, I've been looking at the space prior to entering for about a year. Uh, but, but really casually just reading, asking for, uh, meetings with, with friends of friends that were in the space. Um, the, that's where the relationships began. What, what, you know, the showing genuine curiosity and, and genuine interest in someone not just what they do. Um, but from there, you learn a lot about what they do. I started to learn about the supply chain and all the intricacies of where people fit in the chain and how interconnected uh, the cannabis supply chain is, more so, I think, than, than the typical chain of supply. Um, and, and then you know, every business, uh, cannabis in particular, but they all have a story. That story is tied to the individuals, plural, that that not only founded the business, but operate within that business every day. The the trick, uh, I think, the trick uh, to being supportive and successful at scale, you have to mix um, automation uh, and that could be intake of uh, documentation, underwriting, et cetera, but with the manual process of um, listening to and understanding the story. So, uh, and I think the ultimate blend there uh, in terms of building the relationship is convenience. That's the automation and it's convenience for all parties, the client included, but then also I, I want them to feel like they've been heard. It's hard to develop a relationship and mutual loyalty and respect uh, and trust importantly, if you haven't felt like you've been heard, but, um, how can you trust someone that is really more something? And mm -hmm. if you don't, if you don't have an ear or a voice, uh, that element is missing. So I think that balance is the ingredient to building the relationships. And then I'll just go further. And there have been plenty of instances over my career from student lending um, through traditional SMB and now at Fund Canna, um, where the answer started either as a no or as a smaller number. And then as the relationship evolved or the story really began to show itself, um, what might have been a no becomes a small test or a yes, or what was the 350 in my prior example might begin as an initial funding of 350. And then with a little bit of demonstration, both for the client and for us, uh, of how the dynamic works and how the business relationship develops, we grow into accommodating a larger number um, because there's more of an understanding. If the relationship is missing, then it's really just a black box uh, and that that anonymous nature doesn't lend itself to uh, a mutual relationship for growth. It just it 
it could work, but it doesn't work nearly as well as one that involves the human element. You guys have looked at millions of files in both individuals from student loans to small businesses. Where are the the deep differences and where are the, the un, uncanny similarities in the cannabis industry with the other industries that you have worked in, right? You know, everybody thinks that cannabis is this complete outlier and every industry that I have ever worked in, I've always been told you'll never encounter anything quite like fintech, quite like ad tech, quite like biotech, quite. And they're right. I've never encountered anything at all, like any of those things, except they're all exactly the same in so many ways. So for you, where have you seen the differences? Where have you seen the similarities? And then how has that helped inform how you're building your company? Sure. Uh, it's, it's pretty, um, it's a thoughtful and complex uh, question to answer. The the fact well, I'm a, I am a thoughtful and complex guy. I've heard this actually about you. <laughs> I, I've I've said this. Yeah. <laughs> so so the biggest or most glaring difference is that cannabis is technically illegal at the federal level, and. Um, and that is huge for a lot of reasons. It makes it very difficult to market. Uh, just basic marketing is very difficult. Um, financial services also uh, complicated, sticky, um, and shadowy. Now, when I say that, I don't mean it in a way that's derogatory. I don't mean it in a way that that implies any malfeasance of any kind. Um, it's just it's not clear how you're supposed to arrive at a solution. Um, it, it's just, it's murky. And um, and so it requires more work, more time. And that's candidly where I saw a lot of the opportunity in both of those things. That as, as cannabis, it's far enough along, there's no way to put it back in a box. It's out. So now it's just a function of when and how um, it, this comes to be uh, accepted at the federal level as legal. And, um, and so there's that, that's different. The marketing component is different. The financial murkiness is different. Um, and then a lot of these operators began when, when it was an illicit market and they evolved to become legal operators, which shows not only a commitment, but, and passion for what they do. Um, but but an ingenuity that that all entrepreneurs are creative, they're hardworking, they care. But the the level of um, sustenance and uh, and the hurdles that have been overcome and the the adaptation that I've seen in cannabis is pretty unique. And then lastly, in terms of big glaring difference, um, the timeline and movement within supply chains. So you lay money out in cannabis, typically COD. Sometimes you'll get terms, but they're very short. And those terms never match your revenue cycle. And, and so, so. Can you give an example of that? Cause that, yeah, that, that's really uh, interesting. It, it's very unique in that you must outlay money. So an example, let's say there's a distiller. Uh, uh, or production facility that has to buy crude oil from a manufacturer. They have to pay COD for that crude oil. The process for them to distill that crude oil into either something that's a tincture, a vape, or infusion for edibles, and then for that to be lab tested, packaged, and moved off to, to be sold, either distributor or retail. Um, that that process, it can be anywhere from, let's say, two to seven months, but they had to lay the money out on day one. And um, and now they have this gap uh, between the outlay of capital and they don't have credit. Right. So they don't they don't have credit cards. They can't use credit cards. They don't have lines of credit and um, and they are not being extended terms that match their revenue cycle. So if they don't have the cash guess what? They don't have the product. And if they don't have the product, they're never going to get to the place of revenue. In traditional business, that's a little bit less the case. If you're a contractor, for example, you can buy raw materials on credit. Um, and 
whether that credit is a card or from a lumber yard, or we could keep going through all the things that are available. Um, you don't have that in cannabis. And that, that again, very different, very unique. And another, the, like really the main driver, I wanted to be part of uh, creating a solution for that issue. Um, I, I wanted to lay out the money with the idea that over time I would repay, be repaid. Um, and I wanted to create terms that match the unique revenue cycles of the different spots within the supply chain. So if, uh, if a grow, uh, let's say, takes four months, I want to give them the option of four months, six months, eight months, 12 months, but also give them the option that if they have an early harvest from a different uh, room or a different area or greenhouse, that they could repay early and save on the cost of capital. So either take it through your revenue cycle or turn your different segments, what I would call tranches of capital, um, in order for them to be in control of their the inflow and outflow of credit and their cost of capital. And so that was really, that was the thing that brought me to cannabis. You, you said something earlier, which I think comes into a lot of this, which is you see things differently than your family has, right? Your fan, you see things you said in terms of colors and spreadsheets and, and, and lines linearly. You have spent your career working with money. When you think of just the concept of money, like the idea, because it it's a really esoteric idea, like here's a piece of paper or here are a bunch of ones and zeros that represent something. What does money mean to you? So again, complicated question, which which I love, uh, and I don't expect anything different. Um, but I think first I'll start with money. It, for me as a young person, money was scary because we didn't have it, right? We went through very difficult times where both of my parents were very successful. And then my father uh, used drugs outside of uh, marijuana and uh, damaged his career, damaged the family, uh, and and that divorce and um, his addiction led to a lot of difficult times. Right, no power in the house, you know, eating tomatoes for dinner, and and um, and by no means um, do I expect sympathy or want sympathy from anyone, but it reframed. Um, as a young person, I went from never thinking about money to always worrying uh, about money. So to me, money was the thing that would just give me safety. Um, and um, and so I wanted to better understand it. And so that's, I think, where my desire to understand money or play with numbers, like I said, I don't really love surprises. Um, and so I go back to that concept of being observant. I was surprised when our power went off. I was surprised when I couldn't buy socks um, and um, and I didn't want to be surprised. So it just turned a light on the concept of money for me around the age of 11, I would say. And from there, I just wanted to understand how it worked, like the, the, the flow of money, who controlled the money um, and then ways. Candidly, I would look at other people that didn't have or that were in I, if I was scared at 11, uh, we would we would drive, you know, living in and around New York City, you'd see someone that was homeless. And um, and I realized that there are different levels uh, and there's a, a, a very serious I mean, forgetting the the social issues associated with all of this. Um, just I wanted to understand money and how to use it to create safety or how to help empower via knowledge and education. Um, after I empowered myself with knowledge and study, how could you help an operator now is where I am. How can you help an operator better leverage money so that they have either more security or a stronger foundation from which to grow? Because if you don't have money, the lights go out. And, um, and I want to make sure that that never happens. And also it sounds like it informed your concept of controlled risk, right? I mean, there is a, a, a tolerance for risk, but the tolerance is the thing. You said, I'll never be reckless, but I am willing to be a little bit outside of my comfort zone. Um, and how did you, so that, which makes complete sense, you know, and, and, and also, and I, uh, I'm sorry I didn't know this, you know, um, like, 
you know, everybody when they're a child lives in their own family and has, has, has a completely unrealistic view of what happens in another's family. Um, and hearing you tell this to me now, and you've told it, you just told it to me when we were chatting before, I really feel I, one, you know, addiction runs in my family as well. And it is something that, that I have had to deal with and I understand. And I'm, I have, I don't have sympathy. I have empathy. Right. I can, I know what that feels like. And, um, and I'm, I'm grateful for you sharing that to me. Um, and, but I didn't know about the challenges that you had. I'm sure cause you know, where your dad and my dad were really close. Our mothers were also very close. Um, and I, I did not know whether Carol spoke with my mom, Leslie about your challenges. I never knew. And I'm, now as a 52 year old, I'm, I'm glad to know. And I'm sorry I didn't cause I could have been there for you in a way that you deserved. So, um, but th this is the thing, Lewis, that's interesting about money is, and I've always said this cause you asked about what frames the concept of money. Well, if we stop and we think about this and, you know, speaking to you naturally, but, but for your, your audience not being crude, we, if you stop and you think about this, you'll speak to virtual strangers about almost anything. People now in particular talk about dating, their sex life, you name it. It's all on display. You, you know, the thing that nobody talks about is their finances, right? They just do not speak about their finances. You are more accepted if you speak about your, your sexual exploits with a stranger that you just met, then if uh, can you imagine if they asked you how much money do you have in your savings account, right? Uh, or what do you owe on your visa? Um, how much is your car payment? Nobody would ever talk about that. Does your outflow of money, is it greater than the inflow that you see from your income? People don't talk like that. They don't speak about it. And so as business owners, and and especially entrepreneurial people, people that are that are operating cannabis businesses, we'll talk about how things are difficult. We'll talk price compression, tax issues, uh, disparity in licensing, um, you know, all the federal legislative problems, incarceration, social equity issues. We talk about all those things, and we'll talk about how hard it is. And that um, the struggle is very real, but but very few people will then go to the next level and talk about specific dollar amounts. I, you know, I, I you know, example, you're on the phone with someone, they will not say I, out of nowhere, I only have four hundred dollars in my business account and I have payables of eighteen thousand. I don't know what I'm going to do. They don't have that conversation. So. I think a lot of what shaped my desire to to talk about money is first I run toward the uncomfortable. I'm like the I'm I'm like a slightly younger Larry David. Um, I, I, <laughs> and a lot a lot more handsome. Yeah, well, look, I'll take that too. Thank you, but but uh, but I I think you know, and what I mean by that is he's well intentioned, but very awkward, and my intentions are proper. But I feel like, how can you help if you don't have the uncomfortable dialogue? And so while money is often uncomfortable, again, the relationship comes in. If you can approach someone with the idea that you really want to understand what's going on, and then you want to figure out how do you create product that alleviates that discomfort? Um, now, all of a sudden, it, it, it's not as uncomfortable because you realize it's coming from a place, a desire to create something or to deliver something that will work for them. And, um, and I think that there's been a fair bit of vulnerability on the part, you know, over the course of, because all of those hundreds of thousands of borrowers that we've re referenced, um, you know, the million plus business files that we've underwritten, someone, not me, but someone that has worked with me has spoken to every single one of them, has had conversation. They've talked about spouses and partners and children and employees and tax bills and leaky roofs. Um, and um, and I, I, you know, you've got to talk about it in order to solve the issue. You've got to just let's put it on the table. What are we trying to solve? And let's roll our sleeves up and let's go do it. Now, interestingly, because of the count, we've learned how to how to get there quickly. Um, and, and I don't think it's painful at all. I think it's, um, it, it's actually a bit of a relief. You end up having a very comfortable conversation if you want, 
you know, it, again, it's not a forced issue. But I think, again, shaping the concept of money, it can be awkward. It can be uncomfortable relative to things that should be uncomfortable. Like, yeah, I don't know if we should talk to strangers about our sex lives. Um, but but uh, but if you have those conversations, the relationship with money becomes much more comfortable, uh, much more quickly. And um, you put it on the table and then it can be addressed. And that's what Fun Canada does is it fills the gaps. It 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 it, it introduces additional capital, uh, additional capital into a stream into a supply chain and it bridges the gap between the outlay of money and the inflow of revenue. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that effectively and you do it with the knowledge of uh, any burdens that already exist, then you don't overburden the business and the business thrives, it grows and the money acts as an accelerant. So you're, you're not, it's not all your personal money that you're lending. You have institutional borrowers behind you. And so these are. It, it, I'm sorry to interrupt, but in cannabis, where we are right now, um, I this is a new industry for me. So I'm a proven entity in consumer uh, because of student lending. I'm a proven entity to traditional small business, what they call SMB. And so I had institutional lines in both of those companies. In cannabis, what I wanted to do was really learn the supply chain and put out somewhere between I'll say 25 to 75 million dollars uh, before going to institutions because I wanted two things. I wanted the freedom to be creative. And in order to do that, you can have what they call covenants, which are rules that financial institutions impose on you. So I, I wanted covenant free capital. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted the ability to not really answer to uh, concentration risk and and state or geographic distribution or uh, or be influenced by an institution as to what I should or shouldn't do. Um, and so what I did instead was I raised a little bit of equity and and I'll say a little bit. We raised 30 million dollars uh, between equity and debt, all of it either from myself and my partner or from our friends. Uh, and that gave a, and it's all subordinated to institutional money. So when the time comes to bring the institutional money in, we can do so uh, because it's pre-subordinated. But in the interim, we're free to be as creative as we need or want to be so that we can learn this industry well and service it without those limitations. How does that feel to not have, uh, you know, basically a master, to not be beholden to you know, that the only one, I mean, it's your, it is now your money on the line. It's your friend's money on the line. It's your friend's money on the line. So while you have this freedom, like how does, you know, where does, where does that play into how you think? Well, it's, it goes back to your point earlier about calculated risk. Um, so I say, first, I take it very seriously and I, I'll stop short of calling it stressful. And I'll just say it's pressure related. I, I feel a lot of pressure to, to deliver, not, not only for uh, the people that trusted me with their money, but for our clients. Uh, I'm, being, uh, um, I'm being trusted, or we fund Canna, we're being trusted by cannabis operators to deliver them a product that works for them. And if we do that successfully, uh, everything is going to work out. And if we do not do that successfully, then it's not going to go well for them. It won't go well for me either. Uh, so what I'll tell you, I like a lot about it is I am connected to this industry now at the hip. There is no way to disconnect um, mm -hmm. from, from that supply chain and the ancillary providers to that supply chain. Um, and I do take it very seriously, Lewis. It's the kind of thing that, um, you know, all you really have in life is your reputation. And and so I want to deliver. I feel like I've been able to do that in student lending. Um, and I was able to do that in uh, small business lending. And and that helped my reputation. Uh, the last thing I want to do is go backwards. So I'm I'm working very hard. And so is the, the rest of the team here to make sure we deliver for this industry, which in return, if we do that, we will deliver for our employees and our investors. Who do you turn to for advice? 
Um, uh, it's a great question. I I have often uh, you mentioned my mother earlier. My father passed, as you know, but but for the benefit of the audience, um, my father passed uh, when I was in my early twenties, and and um, and my mom was always a strong force in my life uh, you know, from a very young age. But she's been a mentor to me um, always and continues to be. Uh, she was an amazing business person. Um, you know, she's retired, so that's why I use the past tense. Uh, but but she still has a very sharp mind. So she is a mentor. I had uh, a business mentor when I was in student loans, um, my first CEO, who was a very and also was friendly uh, with my father, uh, that that gentleman, um, very smart guy. He had bought and sold businesses, started a lot of things um, and was very scrappy and was always underestimated and really had a lot to prove, um, but did an amazing job of proving that. So he's someone else. And then I'll say in my current form, um, I also, uh, my partner in this business was my biggest competitor in my prior business. So he and I were two of the largest lenders to small business. Um, and, uh, and I, I really, I always respected what he had built and the way he handled his business, the way he treated his clients and his employees. Uh, and we became very friendly over the years, despite being, um, I'll say vicious competitors, uh, in the field of work, we were very close outside of that. Uh, and we always treated each other with respect. Uh, m the company that I had started in SMB is still operating. Um, and is going very strong and has a great foundation and amazing people that work there. He still competes with them and they still respect each other. When I took him on as a partner here, I was able to work a lot more closely with him on what we do at Fund Canna. And so I count him as uh, as an ear um, and uh, and a mentor now, too. And, uh, you yeah, know, but I learned from I, I learned from anyone that is uh, has a desire to teach. Um, I'm always listening and, and, um, I feel, think of myself as a per perpetual student. So, but I, those are really the primary, I would say I lean most on my, so does that mean you are perpetually in debt? Yeah. So, uh, thankfully no, I'm kidding. no longer, no longer, but, but, uh, but I, you know, that's the amazing thing about the internet. Um, and, and the amazing thing about building relationships is as people grow to respect you and like you. Um, they want to help you. And I think it's an amazing thing about, about human beings. Um, underneath it all, uh, we really do most of the time. You know, there are bad apples in every group, but most of the time we really do want to help one another. And, um, and so I, I, it's incredible. Sometimes, you know, teaching comes from where you least expect it. But, but uh, between the internet and, and people, I am always learning. I have a million more questions. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I do want to ask another question, though, I think that's important for both your business and for the industry, which is the Safe Banking Act, right? There, there, it may or may not pass, right? The, the Schumer bill may or may not pass. But if Safe Banking Act passes, what does that mean for the small business borrower and, and, and of equal importance? What does it mean for you? So I, I think I'll answer that, but but I, I also want to say it's not just safe banking. We need we need cannabis to be legal at the federal level, not only for banking, and and we'll touch on that. So let's go back to safe banking. Currently, there are roughly uh, and you know uh, please don't call me out on this, but roughly fifteen thousand banks uh, serving the United States, and that includes credit unions. And of those, you've got give or take five percent that are servicing cannabis already. So without safe banking, there are 600 or so banks that service cannabis. I think, so, so from my perspective, cannabis operators are all able to be banked. But what does that mean? Well, banking means you have a safe place to put your money. Um, you have a safe place from which to pay your bills and to be paid. However, um, you don't have available to you all of the things that come with banking. Lending is still very difficult. In fact, banks typically are not lending. Even where I talk about low approval rates, they're lending really only with secured interest in real estate. Um, and many cannabis operators haven't gotten to the point where they own a facility yet. 
and certainly if they do, they've already borrowed to obtain it. So the idea of borrowing through banking is very difficult. But but safe banking, I think, uh, is not only a huge step because it shows government uh, through through execution that cannabis is moving and advancing. And really, it, it gets us to take cannabis away from schedule one classification um, and uh, and more uniform laws elsewhere. Um, but but so safe banking, it makes it less expensive to bank is really what will come out of this. Because when you only have a finite group of uh, businesses that service a group, they can charge more. And when something is technically illegal at the federal level, there is more risk and there's more cost for those banks. There's a higher compliance threshold. It's not just the typical anti-money laundering, what you hear of AML or know your customer, what you hear as KYC and all the other security uh, things, FinCEN process, uh, SARS filings, which is suspicious activity reports. All of that stuff is mitigated and therefore all the costs come down and then more players come in and that would reduce the cost of banking. I don't know that, in my opinion, banking is not inaccessible right now because there are 600 banks from which to choose from, but it is very expensive and it is an onerous process. Um, And so I think it reduces that. But and it gets us closer to the federal legalization. But I I just I want to say that that I think, you know, it's passed now, I think, what, seven or eight times. The the safe banking or uh, in the House, not in the it hasn't passed once in the Senate. I mean, right. I mean, they have I don't even think they voted on it in the Senate once, you know, because they won't because because Cory Booker won't until they get you know, criminal justice, expungement, all of all of the 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 issues that underpin the industry, you know, from the history of the war on drugs, which is really basically the war on black and brown people. Um, but yes, it has not been voted on in the Senate yet. Right. And and I think that that's really the underlying issue. When I talk about safe banking, I think we need large reform. And um, it, it's disheartening to see something pass the House seven times or so, right? It might be eight now. I, I candidly, it's sad, but you lose track because it passes and then goes nowhere. Um, but again, it's like we're focused on passing something seven times that we already have access to, but yet we're we're being triple taxed, right? You don't you 280e is a killer, right? You can't write off your cost of goods. Um, you've got excise taxes, you've got usage taxes, it's 38% taxation and all that. And then you've got uh, 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 the prosecutorial issues associated with everything you just referenced and you can't market. So it's your cost of goods, your your cost of taxes, the disparity in licensing, um, all of these things. And you can have an amazing grow operation, but you can only sell intrastate and then the state doesn't license enough retailers to sell the glut of product that exists. And it creates not only price compression, but then it fuels the illicit market. So for me, safe banking is like the is such a small piece of what we're dealing with. And it's addressing the one thing we kind of already have. Now, granted, it's not what it should be. And, and I don't want it to be misconstrued what I'm saying. It's just, but the the elephants that are all lined up are outside of banking, and um, and I we need the standardization in mm-hmm. taxation and regulation and licensing and interstate commerce that every other industry has, um, and uh, and so I think those things for me it's a it's a lot more frustrating to see all of that at an impasse. And the politics associated with the same, forgetting what side of politics, that doesn't matter to me. It's just politics interfering in what is an amazing, both recreational and medicinal industry uh, that is just being hamstrung um, by this back and forth. It's 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 wild in the worst of ways. In the worst of ways. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question and then I'm going to let you go. Um, you have for decades been successful 
And most successful people have, have either habits or rituals or patterns in their life that they are consistent about following. What do you do? How, what, what, what have you built into your life to allow you to be successful? So first I'll say, you said decades of, of success. And I'm going to tell you um, that the internal struggle uh, that, you know, it's kind of everybody from the outside looking in, I said this before, it's easy to assume that somebody is successful. And I'm not saying this between you and I, I'm saying for mm -hmm. the audience, um, it, it, the, the struggle is constant. Um, and, 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 that's not just associated with our success. It's with a feeling of confidence or the ability to persevere when you're not feeling successful. And, and so, and I've gone through a divorce personally, and I've gone through issues with my own children that, um, that have been difficult for me as a father and just as a, as a human being. Um, and I've had lots of setbacks, ups and downs in the workplace. So what I find to answer your question is uh, I, I thrive with routine and the, the, it's very easy to make excuses as to why uh, routine doesn't work or that you don't like routine or, but what I find is if I begin my day the same way every day, every day, if I, if I know that it's going to be the same every morning when I wake up and I also know that it's going to end the same. And by that, I don't mean wake up and go to sleep. Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> Every morning when I, when I wake up, I wake up at the same time, uh, which is at, uh, five forty-five. Uh, and, what, and what's the first thing you do? Uh, well, the first thing I do, which is not the best habit, but I allow myself, is five minutes. I look at the Wall Street Journal or or any other news source, but I typically uh, Wall Street Journal on my phone. You know, I have the app. I look for five minutes, just scan stories. Um, and that's more to just wake up for five minutes. I give myself the five minutes, but I do that instead of snoozing because what I found the alternative was I was hitting snooze, but I, I look, I force myself, I grab my phone right away. I open my eyes. I look at the phone. Now that may not be viewed by, you know, the smartest guys in the world, like Tony Robbins and others is the best, but that's what I do. And then at five 50, I'm out of bed. Even if I find a great story, I bookmark it. I force myself out. And then I, I brush my teeth, I get dressed and I go right to the gym and I do cardio for a minimum of 15 minutes. So sometimes I'll do more and then I do weights and then I come home, I shower, I address emails and I start my day. And, um, and then I, all day, you never know it's controlled chaos. Sometimes it's chaos without control. But what I know is at the end of the day, it's going to end the same. And what I mean by that is every night when I get into bed, I have a Kindle and every night when I get into bed, I read for at least, again, it's at least in the morning, you know, uh, X amount of time on the treadmill and X amount of time in the weight room. I do the same thing with the Kindle, at least 15 minutes um, of reading. And, and all it allows me to know is at the end of the day, I can escape into a book no matter what happened. And that helps my brain wind down so that I can sleep. And when I, and I know when I wake up, I know how my day is going to start. I don't have to think about a curveball in the beginning because I know this is what's going to happen. Um, and then the chaos in the middle, uh, just, you know, I deal with it better when I have that kind of routine. I'm a little bit more level-headed and, um, and patient. And, and so, uh, and, and then on the weekends, uh, it, the routine's almost the same, only I start at 6.30 instead of 5.45. Oh, you give yourself that extra 45 minutes. That's nice. Well, yeah. Again, I want to fit it in so that whatever I want to do that day, I don't have an excuse. If mm -hmm. something's going to start at 8 a.m., I don't want to have the excuse for not having a morning routine. So uh, I found that by 6.30, I can still do my routine and, and have mm -hmm. my day. Um, fiction, biography, nonfiction, what are you reading? Uh, all of it there. First, there's a great app. I'm going to, I'll plug it, uh, inadvertently, but there's a great app called Blinkist. Um, mm -hmm. and it's like uh, cliff notes for grownups. And so, um, if it's only for non, uh, uh, a nonfiction, so they don't, they don't summarize fiction books, but nonfiction books, I, I read a Blinkist every day. Uh, that's not my nighttime reading, 
but I read a Blinkist every day. And usually some of my nonfiction books will be born out of, I read the summary in Blinkist. And if I'm intrigued enough that I want more than the concepts, I'll buy the book. But to answer your question, I alternate fiction and nonfiction. Um, and I, I like all authors, all topics. Um, and, uh, but in terms of um, fiction, uh, I like to escape, like really escape. So I'm not, you know, save the jokes. I'm not reading romance novels, um, but but uh, but I do. I'll read books uh, about most everything, um, and then on nonfiction, I I do. It's less self help, although I have no issue with it, than it is um, psychology. Uh, but I also love to learn about history and trade. Um, so. Uh, and I, I alternate so that I don't get bored of one. Like I don't want to immerse myself only in learning through nonfiction because then I burn out. So if I have a fiction book and escape for a little while, then I can learn with the next book and then just alternate back and forth. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time, man. Um, and I can honestly tell you, I am grateful that we have really reconnected in a meaningful way. Uh, not just because we work together, but that because we have reconnected in a really meaningful way, it's, it, I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. Thanks, Lewis. Uh, I feel the same way and, uh, and I appreciate the relationship a lot. Cool. All right. And we're done.